It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO Steve Cunningham. Steve's father demonstrated successful entrepreneurship instilled in him a lifelong passion for learning and helped Steve learn to not mistake activity for productivity. He graduated from Western University with a law degree and after a single week as a lawyer, he knew it wasn't his passion. Steve moved on to the family signage business and understanding one role wouldn't be enough to satisfy his goals, he started a marketing agency. Read It For Me, where he's now CEO, creates 12-minute videos detailing the best business and personal development books in the world. Steve Cunningham, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, wonderful to have you here, Steve. We always kind of get started to talk a little bit about the early years. And I know with hockey and your background and the Canadian connection that we talked about a little bit before the podcast, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you know what your early family life was like. Yeah, I grew up in a town called Hamilton, Ontario, uh, just that's about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Know it well. Beautiful uh, area. I had a, a fantastic upbringing, loving mother and father. I've got a younger sister. Um, and, you know, kind of going back into my early years, one of my, one of my favorite memories from childhood was in the basement of our house. I would listen to uh, Tony Robbins tapes with my father, which is where I, I got the what I think is the best gift I've ever received, which is the the gift of a desire for lifelong learning. And I can still remember the sound those tapes would make. Uh, so tapes back in the day, we didn't have podcasts <laughs> back then. Right, and right. Uh, the smell of the the cassette player, and it just really those early mornings with my father is where I got that uh, that love and passion for learning that I still have today. Tell us about your parents. Uh, professionals? Uh, were they working class? What What was their background? My father uh, was an entrepreneur. Um, he was. I had multiple businesses, um, and he he started his career in sales. Shortly thereafter, figured that you know he wasn't he wasn't very good working for other people, so he started his own business. Um, and he's been an entrepreneur his his entire life for as long as I can remember. Um, my mother was was a stay at home mom, and she did a, a wonderful job being a, a stay at home mom. And uh, yeah, just uh, great memories of my childhood. Other than the Tony Robbins basement sessions, which I'm sure were as much for him as they were for you, um, what other kind of influences did your parents have on you growing up? 
you know, one story comes to mind uh, immediately was I, so I was playing hockey growing up and I was, there's in Canada and I don't know how they, they do different sports here in the States, but there's uh, a thing called triple a hockey in Canada, which is the top players from a, from a city uh, for the age categories. And I got cut. Uh, or actually I made the team and then uh, shortly into the season, I was demoted to the double A team, which, which was an odd scenario. Like the coach called me up. I was 10 years old um, and didn't talk to my parents, just told me I was demoted. So that was a weird experience. Um, and you know, I was, you know, I was 10 and I was devastated. I was embarrassed and I didn't want to play. I didn't want to go play for the double A team. And my father, um, in, in a kind and, and gentle way, convinced me that I should just give it, give it a shot. Uh, just go try for a few weeks. And if you still don't want to play, that's fine. And um, I, I learned the lesson of perseverance and that things are not always as bad as they seem. And if you don't give it a shot, you're not, you're not going to know, uh, you know, what you're made out of. So true. And yeah. so for me, that was a, you know, I was never the most talented player. I was never the most talented student. And whatever success I've had in life was because uh, I tried hard. And so... Um, Got back on the it, horse as well. Yeah. Huh? So that was a yeah. great lesson that I learned uh, from my childhood. So I would say that was a huge influence on me, that and, you know, that love of learning, um, both of which I think have served me well as, a, as an entrepreneur and a CEO. Other, any early influencers, you know, any coaches or teachers that you remember things that uh, have stuck with you through the years? That's a good question. I, you know, I remember some of my teachers fondly, some of them not so fondly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th I think in terms of influences, the biggest influence, I think, uh, were, were definitely my parents, my father in particular, and when it comes to sports uh, and learning and um, personal development. Were you a good student? I was I was a fairly good student. I think uh, an A student you know, in grade school, um, a decent student in high school. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't uh, a Rhodes Scholar by any <laughs> means, but class, I was. Right? But I was I would say I was a good student. I obviously, you played hockey. Any other sports or music, theater, things that interested you growing up? Yeah, I I, I played uh, classical piano. For for a while, I started when I th I think I was four years old um, playing piano. Um, I played some baseball growing up, uh, lacrosse, which is uh, not like the not is a is a version of lacrosse played inside a hockey rink when the hockey rink melts for the summer. Oh, um, on ice, on the like on the floor where the, so they keep the the boards up for for the arena, um, but you play it on the on the uh, inside the. Yeah, so indoors. Yeah, and I was a uh, I was definitely a sports junkie growing up. You did some in your longer bi biography. We talked about some of your entrepreneurial things. I think at the age of four or six, you were trading baseball cards. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I started to. There was um, I was a big hockey card and, and baseball card collector, and I and we would go to the uh, this older guy's house. So he ran a, a little business out, outside of his house. And <laughs> How I old was he? <laughs> when you say older uh, guy, yeah, well, he was probably he <laughs> was probably yeah. He, <laughs> no, he was a man. So I think okay. he, he must have been in his you know his thirties or forties, but right, he seemed old right. to me. Um, 
And uh, I've always had a, an entrepreneurial bent. So I, I figured out where he was getting his cards from. And um, I started uh, my own little business on the side. And I think it lasted about a month because I had told the that guy who Supplier. was now, now oh. my, my competitor that I was now getting supplied by this other guy and he got upset. And so I got cut off from the, from this main <laughs> supplier. So I got uh, started a business and got pushed out of the market. You, you um, learned a little bit about competition, right? I sure did. Information with. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, good lesson to learn early on. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a short lived experiment, but I, I didn't lose any passion for it for sure. What were some of the other entrepreneurial things that you did early on? I learned a really good marketing lesson when I was, I think I was even younger than that. And I wanted to, uh, hold my own garage sale. And I took all of my toys out and I put them on the front lawn. And what I didn't do was that I didn't tell anybody I was having a garage sale. <laughs> I was just a, a weird kid sitting on the lawn with all of his toys and, and nobody stopped to buy anything. So I learned the importance of, uh, marketing and you know letting people know that you've got some things that they might like to buy. Uh, what about jobs? I know you've been pretty much an entrepreneur your whole career. Did you hold any jobs going through high school or college? In high school, I typically during the summers would work uh, with and for my dad uh, doing odd, odd jobs. I had a job one year pruning Christmas trees which was the probably the worst job I've ever had <laughs> in the blazing sun oh, clipping gosh. clipping pine trees by hand with swarms of bees and pine getting all over you and it was just a it was a tough tough job in uh, university I drove a potato chip truck so I would drive around to all the convenience stores and okay. deliver deliver their yeah, yeah. their chips stocking, to them yeah, stocking right. up the chips uh, and um during law school, I had a job working for a law firm. So aside from those were my jobs while I was in school. And then since then, I've been an entrepreneur. I remember reading in your deeper background that you tried being a lawyer for about a week and then you knew that wasn't for you. So let's talk a little bit about what led you on your college journey. Uh, did dad have his, his, his degree and mom? No, no. I was the first, uh, first one in my family to get a college degree. So it wasn't really a foregone conclusion. Was it something that you were encouraged to do by dad or others or something you put your heart against? In terms of college? Or yeah, exactly. In terms of going to college at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, it was never a question for me whether I was going to go to college. My, my, my parents, like I said, ra raised me to you know, place a high importance on learning. I think it was something that um, he wanted for me. And, um, because I was playing hockey, it was a, it was a logical thing for me to do. Uh, so I, and it was never a, a question of whether or not I would go to, to college, but, um, so I think it was instilled in me very young that that's what I would be doing. How did you pick a major and, and decided you want to go into law initially? <laughs> The major, I, I honestly don't remember how I chose it. Uh, I've always been good at math. So my major was was math and economics and a minor in uh, business administration. Uh, so I, I think I just gravitated towards the things that I was naturally good at, good at uh, in school and uh, really enjoyed that. How I chose law school, uh, I graduated in 2001. And around that time, I had considered going into investment banking. Um, and the, the school that I went to had a lot of alumni on Wall Street. Um, and, I, and some of my friends actually went into investment banking. And of course, you know, uh, September 
of that year was was nine eleven. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure how I decided not to do it, but I decided I didn't want to go into investment banking and I was taking a law class at the time. My, and my father had always wanted me to become a professional. That was, that was his hope for me. So, you know, doctor, lawyer, accountant, uh, and so on. So I, I decided that, uh, how, you know, much like I think a lot of people do, I'm not sure what I want to do for a living. So I'll, I'll get some more education was really the, the long and the short of it. So I took the LSAT, uh, passed, I applied to some law schools and I got in and that was how I decided. So it was never a, a, a career that I had grown up wanting to, to get into, but I, I enjoyed the, the learning around it. I enjoyed the, like the intellectual rigor of, uh, how lawyers think and which is what I got out of my class while I was in college. So I figured that that would be a good proxy for what uh, what I would learn in law school, and that's how I landed in law school. It sounds like you went straight to law school, too. There was no working time in between once you graduated from undergrad. That's right. So what was that first job out of law school? Tell us about that law firm and that, and that famous week. <laughs> well, uh, it was between my second and third year in law school that I uh, got a job at a law firm, and I essentially got to carry the bag for the senior partner at the firm for the, the entire summer. And, and I, and I say that in all seriousness, I carried bags, I drove them around the things, um, got to do a little bit of work on my own. But what struck me during that summer was that most of the people that I met in the law firm and the other people in the law hated their lives. And I, I tell the story of when I was driving the the potato chip truck and I was getting my training from one of the guys who, uh, was was doing that full time, and he he made an offhand comment to me that he lived for the weekend, and I thought you know that's uh, that really stuck with me, and that's not something that I wanted for myself in a in a career, and uh, very surprising to me that when I went into the the law firm, and uh, I don't know if every law firm does this, but uh, on Friday afternoons, sometimes lawyers take long lunches that include uh, alcoholic beverages, and they loosen up a little bit. And you know, uh, uh, the vast majority of them basically admitted that you know this was a this was a job for them. Uh, they didn't consider it a calling. They didn't. They weren't passionate about the work that they did, and it was a it was a way to 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 make a paycheck. Wasted lives. And yeah. So, and is the, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just not how I wanted to live my life. And so, um, I decided uh, then and there that if I was going to put in long hours and be miserable, I might as well do it about something I'm passionate about. So, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I went to my father and I said, you know, I know you really want me to go to law school or be a lawyer, but I, I don't think I mean, my heart's in it. And what I want to do, what I really think would fulfill me is to join you in the family business. And at the time it was a signage, a small sign company. And, you know, my, my dad didn't have visions of me coming back to work in his sign business. Uh, he had visions of me being a professional. And so for him, it was a, it was a difficult thing to hear. So he, he, he made a deal with me much like the deal he made with me when I got cut from the hockey team. And he said that, you know, I, if you finish up law school and you get called to the bar and you still want to come join me in the family business, then we can talk. So I finished up uh, law school and in Canada, they have an apprenticeship year, which is called articling. 
And so I finished up my articling, got called to the bar, and uh, the law firm, which had offered me a job full-time, but I had turned down, and I said, well, if you're not going to work for us full-time, can you at least stick around for a week and finish up this file you're working on? Uh, because we don't have anybody else to do it. So I figured, you know, this this would be a good story to tell for the rest of my life that I was a lawyer <laughs> for exactly for a week. one week. And uh, and here I am. I, th- I think I still hold the, the world record on shortest tenure. <laughs> or I've yet to meet someone who has done it for uh, four days instead of five. A shorter time, right. So did you go to work for dad right away then or what happened afterwards? I did. I did. I joined the, the family business uh, he quickly made me the president of the company. And as I like to joke, if law school does a bad job of preparing you to be a lawyer, it does an even worse job of preparing you to run a business. <laughs> so, uh, and w- what they do in law school, I, people ask me, oh, what's law school like? Well, they assign you hundreds of pages of reading every single day, and you have to come back the next day being ready to summarize basically what you had learned in front of the entire class. And then the professor uh, essentially asks you a bunch of tough questions and embarrasses you. That's so that's, that's law school um, times three years. So you do that for three years. And, uh, but what you get really good at is consuming a lot of information very quickly and then making really good notes on it so that when it's your turn to stand up in front of the class, you don't embarrass yourself. So I did the only thing uh, when I joined the family business that I knew how to do, which is I went out and I bought as many books as I possibly could on leadership and sales and marketing, and I read them. And I I just was in the habit of making really good notes uh, and essentially creating summaries of those books. Um, And around the same, this was around the time when social media was starting to become a thing for business, but there were no real case studies around it. So just to kind of tee those two things up for context. And um, I decided when I joined the family business that I didn't want to run a sign company for the rest of my life. As I was reading these business books, it seemed to me like the people who had this joy and passion for life were the people that I was introduced to through you know the stories of entrepreneurship and, uh, and in particular people who were in marketing. People in marketing were super fascinating to me. They seemed to be, you know, big, huge characters and just loved what they did. And that's what I wanted for myself. So I decided uh, incorrectly, by the way, that the best way to do that is to create a marketing agency. But that's what I did. And um, I started to get a bunch of meetings with the with you know, CEOs and executives. And I, I think we were speaking quickly before we joined the call that I, I was doing a lot of speaking on the topic around the time. So I got a lot of meetings uh, and I did a bunch of what I now know, now know is free consulting. That's a bad <laughs> idea if you want to join a business or create a business. But in every one of these meetings, the I would notice that the CEOs and the VPs of marketing and so on would have a stack of books on their desk or on their shelf. And so you know, doing a little bit of sales 101, I tried to create some rapport. And so I would invariably have read some of the books that were in their office and I would ask them, you know, what did you think about this idea from that book and that idea from this book and so on? And most of the time, they would stare back at me blankly. And <laughs> Having not read it themselves or she, not remembering she, it, right? Right. Sheepishly admit, <laughs> for the most part, that they hadn't read them. Yeah. It got on their desk by someone giving it to them or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Or they bought it and they're you know, you know, they at some conference and they bought it because the author was there. 
Um, and so then I thought, well, okay, this is interesting. So I got a conundrum. I got, A, nobody wants to uh, be the first person to write a check for social media marketing for their business. Um, so what I'm going to need to do is create our own case study. So rather than uh, explaining to them the vision of what they could use social media for their business, I would have to show them a case study. So we decided to do our own case study. So I took my notes that I was making on these books and we created uh, an animated video around uh, around the summary that I had created, an animated video uh, at the time, because I was doing these myself, uh, is uh, vastly overselling it. It was a, a horribly put together keynote presentation <laughs> with, with me voicing it over. And, but I, uh, so we sent it to 10 people. Uh, those 10 people pass it on to 20 to 50 to 100 and a thousand and so on. And so it did what we had hoped it would do, which is people, uh, CEOs would pass it around. Uh, they would drive uh, them back to our website and it would generate business for us. So these days, these days that's called content marketing, but I had no idea what I was doing. I was just flying by the seat of my pants. So did you start managing people, uh, in that job or, or were you managing people back with dad's business? So it was mostly at the time running the the marketing agency. So um, and you know s- slowly but surely uh, that was working. It was it was helping us generate clients. But then we would get some weird phone calls from people. One of the one of them was people started calling me, telling me that they were VCs, and I was in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, uh, in a signage company with a marketing agency built inside of it, and I had never heard of. A VC, and so uh, I had no idea what they did for a living. But they, you know, they were calling from Silicon Valley asking me what my business model was. And uh, now, as I like to joke, I have a lot of jokes around things that I was really stupid about in the past, um, including this one. If you want to uh, get rid of those pesky VCs who are interested in investing in your business, just tell them you're building a marketing agency, and they'll they'll, <laughs> they'll leave you away. Al- they'll leave you alone. So. Uh, <laughs> So what we told them were, you know, this is, you know, this is social media. It's free, man. So um, they stopped calling. But slowly but surely, we got uh, another set of calls from people saying, hey, you know, I really love what you're doing. You know, how can we become customers? How can I pay you? And I would, ex- you know, patiently explain to them that, you know, you don't understand. This is free. This is marketing for our business. Uh, you don't need to pay us. And then they <laughs> would, got, they you would. You got the pati- product wrong. <laughs> yeah. So they would, they would patiently explain to me. That no, you don't understand. <laughs> you got a viable really, product there. I really like this, and I want to pay you because I want you to continue to do it. So uh, slowly but surely, I figured it out, um, and we put up a PayPal paywall. Uh, lo and behold, people started paying us. Uh, we thought, well, that's that's fun, that's cool. Well, maybe we can get some corporate customers. And around that time, I was reading a book called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, who's the CEO of Zappos. And um, because I didn't know what I was doing, I just cold emailed Tony and sent him a huge long email about the ways their culture fit our culture and how our product could be great for them. Um, and uh, I asked him two things. One, can I interview you about your book on a podcast that I'm creating? And B, can, uh, you, can you buy our service for your company? And this was this was back in the the first round of social media and when podcasts were starting to become big, like eight, eight or nine years ago. 
And he said yes to both accounts, and he became a corporate customer, or Sappos became a corporate customer. And uh, we've just slowly but surely over the last years uh, turned it into a full-time business. And I no longer run my marketing agency. <laughs> and uh, I'm here down in San Antonio, Texas, recording this today. Um, so there's a there's a bunch of stuff in between. But what happened in the meantime is, uh, you know, thousands of entrepreneurs and executives from around the world became customers. And here we are. That's awesome. How would you say your leadership styles evolved over that period of time? I, I literally just recorded a, a podcast about that specific question uh, on the weekend, and I pre- and I swear you didn't set me up for that. Um, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> there is a, so the, one of the books that I read recently is called Radical Candor, and uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's the Radical Candor is uh, the definition is the combination of uh, caring personally about the people you work with and challenging directly. So this kind of sweet balance of, you know, really caring about the people that work for you and but also at the same time holding them accountable and being very straight with them about what you need from them. And uh, so I, I kind of walked the my podcast listeners through this idea that for the first stage of my career, I was an obnoxious jerk. Uh, and, and I would, I read far too many Jack Welsh books about, you know, you got to be brutally honest with everybody at all times. Uh, and that led to many awkward conversations and generally to people not liking me as a leader. Um, I had enough bad experiences with that, that I went on the flip side into what the author of Radical Candor would call ruinous empathy, which was just basically only caring about what people connecting with people personally and you know, I would start taking people out for lunch and and drinks and coffee and really getting to know them as an employees. But it became very difficult for me to hold anybody accountable because I would, I you know, I really wanted to care for them personally. And uh, you know, I think I still struggle with that. Um, and but uh, my my leadership style, I think today would be to be myself, uh, most importantly, not try to be someone I'm not, uh, and to be as uh, as direct as I can with them while, you know, not being that obnoxious jerk that I was in my mid, mid to late twenties. Well, your current company is now about six, seven years old. Is that, uh, it's uh, current length or has it been under different auspices during that period of time? Yeah, it's, it, it was a side gig for some time, uh, in my digital marketing agency. So we've been at read it for me full time for two years but um, it's it's been around as a as a product uh, for I think about eight or nine. And how many people are on your team? Uh, Full time employees and contractors. We've got seven employees. So tell us a little bit about you know your thoughts on building a company culture. Obviously, based on some of the learnings you had early on, you've got some thoughts about that. What you know, what does it take, and how do you go about doing it? You know, it's not something that we've actively spent a lot of time discussing or even consciously doing. We work, uh, I'm down here in San Antonio, Texas. The core of my team, which we built uh, in Canada, is up in Canada around Toronto. Oh, they're still there. Okay. They're still Mm -hmm. there. Uh, We've got some team members here in San Antonio. And um, even in Toronto, we've worked remotely. And I'm a a big fan of the, the company Basecamp and the way that they work. Um, and the idea is that, you know, work gets done, uh, the, the work that we do needs a lot of deep thinking time. 
And so we try to eliminate distractions. Uh, we don't, you know, we're not using Slack. We're not constantly uh, text messaging one another. Um, we need hours at a time where we can think and do th- deep thinking and, you know, deep work. So I think our, you know, if, if I had to describe our company culture, it would be a very low key, uh, get, get a lot of work done on your own. So we give a lot of autonomy to our team. And, um, that's, uh, and, you know, when we have meetings, they're purposeful and, and we get, get actual work done in our meetings. Um, and because we're uh, remote, we don't, we don't do a lot of, spend a lot of time together. Um, but you, every once in a while we'll get together as a team and we'll, we'll go somewhere and spend a few days as a team. So, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to describe our culture. I think it's a, that's a tough question for me because we haven't actively directly addressed it. Are you hiring new people? Are you building out the team or are you pretty steady state with regards to your current business flow? We are, it's, it's interesting. When I, when I first came to San Antonio, my, my desire and my hope was that I could just read books for a living. So I'm the one uh, in the business who was reading and summarizing the the books that we feature on Reader for me. Um, and I, you know, the last year or so, has has kind of taught me that you know maybe that that's never going to happen for me. I, I should I should probably uh, put my big boy pants on and and, and grow up and be a, a CEO. Um, so we're we're actively looking for uh, team members to run some specific programs in our company uh, and take things off of our plate. But um, in general, our trajectory and how we're thinking about growing the business uh, would would involve a lot of uh, either contractors and or uh, partners like independent business owners as partners so um, in general I my operating principles is to keep the company as small as possible while still growing in terms of you know revenue and, and customers and so on what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in Steve People who can work autonomously, uh, people who, which, which typically, uh, means older people, but, um, but that's far too much of a broad generalization. Like people who have a track record of working autonomously, um, people who can think for themselves and make decisions, uh, about the work that they're doing on their own, uh, nice people. And we want to work with, with people who, get along well with others. And, uh, I, I think basically I would look at who I was in my twenties and say, we want the opposite of that guy. <laughs> you know what you don't want, right? That's yeah, important. Exactly. What brought you to San Antonio? Um, one of our long-term customers was a gentleman by the name of Graham Weston, who founded a company in San Antonio called Rackspace. And, uh, at one point, he needed to change his credit card information on file. So we got a, an email from his executive assistant saying, I need to change uh, the credit card information you guys have. Like, how do I do that? And we got the information and we noticed that the name on the credit card was was Graham Weston. And I just the week before read a book that had featured the story of Rackspace and thus Graham in the book. So I put two and two together and I reached out to Graham and lo and behold, uh, shortly after that, he got back to me. Uh, we spent some time on the phone it turns out he's the world's only business book summary aficionado, which is, uh, 
it's a market of one and he is it. And um, we just got to talking about business. So I was lucky enough that he invited me down to San Antonio to spend some time with him in person. Um, it's not often, uh, you know, a self-made billionaire uh, takes an interest in your business. So I took full advantage. And um, during a couple of visits down to San Antonio, I really fell in love with the the tech ecosystem that they're building here in San Antonio and really the just the people here in that community. And so uh, we had some conversations about what it would look like to, to bring our business down here to San Antonio. And uh, here we are. Yeah, awesome. We talked uh, before the podcast about our mutual membership in C12 group. And uh, how did you get connected with those folks, Buck, Jacobs, and Mike Sharrow? So I got connected with Mike Sharrow through a friends uh, slash customer out of Dallas uh, who uh, I think either knows Mike personally or it was acquaintance of Mike. And he just want, he was just doing a nice favor by connecting us to somebody who might be a good potential customer. Um, and I, re- I remember the call vividly. I was, I was sitting at home in my basement um, and talking to Mike and this other gentleman. And as it turns out, Mike was looking for a book summary company to augment the materials that C12 produces every month. And I explained to Mike that, you know, I, I had been a member of Vistage uh, for many years up in Canada and, you know, I was looking for something that was a, a, a convergence of my business and my faith. And, uh, we, we kind of took the conversation from there and, uh, fast forward to today and I'm a C12 member here in San Antonio and, uh, and love every minute of it. Well, Steve, you've been very generous with your time, and we're, we're just about over 30 minutes here. So uh, a couple of things you'd mentioned that you uh, had an offer for our listeners. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We've recently launched a, a new product line in our business. We're calling it The List. And one of the use cases of our product is for people to be able to stay on top of the latest uh, and greatest uh, business books, the ones that are on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, and Amazon Charts bestsellers lists. And uh, for uh, if you go to our website, you'll see that for sale for $99 per year per person, and, but we're offering it for free to our partner network, and we'd love to make that offer to your audience as well. So if you go over to readitfor.me slash ROI, you'll be able to sign up for a free account for the list there, and we'll look forward to having you in the Read It For Me community. Thank you, Stephen. We'll also post that where our uh, podcast is posted on our website as soon as that goes up uh, when you get released. It'll be sometime uh, around Christmas time. So a nice Christmas gift for all our audience. <laughs> Last question for, for you, Steve. Um, you know, as uh, we talked about before, many of our listeners are, you know, mid-career folks that maybe are in the C-suite, have their eye on the corner office, or maybe thinking about something, you know, entrepreneurial on their own. But what career and life advice would you give to those folks who really have their eyes either on you know creating a business themselves or, or make it into the CEO uh, slot. Well, I can't I can't comment directly on what it takes to get into the the CEO chair from inside a company, um, but I, I can comment on how to become the CEO of your own company. And I was I was just having a chat with a with a, a gentleman today who was contemplating doing just that. And the advice that I gave him was, and this is going to sound very simplistic, um, but I think it's the best advice I can give which is uh, try a lot of things and keep what works 
and stop doing what doesn't. And the I think the you know the principle behind this is the only way you're actually going to learn what works and what doesn't work is to do it. And uh, far too often, I think people get caught up in overanalyzing things and, and overworking things in their mind and trying to get things perfect. And what I've learned as an entrepreneur is that no matter how much thinking you do about a, a an idea or a product or uh, anything that you're going to do in life, what it looks like in reality is going to be much different than what you think it is. And the the way to get to where you need to go is to continue to to do things and to iterate your way to success. Um, and I think any successful CEO and entrepreneur would would tell you that. No, that's very helpful. And you know, I think you said it. If if not, you certainly implied it. Find something you love to do. You know, that's come through so often. You talked about the lawyers and, you know, the potato chip guy who lived for the weekends. You know, if you're not enjoying your work, we spend most of our time doing it. Find something else. <laughs> There's a lot of things to do out there and you should have a passion and enjoy what you do every day. Yeah, I think, you know, that's an interesting one. And, you know, I've, I've heard both sides of that equation, which is A, you should find something you love and do that. Uh, but the flip side is to do the things that you're very good at and that eventually you'll learn to love it. And I think there's <laughs> there's true. value in both of those approaches, but certainly don't do something that you absolutely hate Loathe. or can't see yourself <laughs> doing for the rest of your life because it's going to be a long haul. Steve Cunningham, thank you once again for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.